Once Jesus and his disciples stopped at a village in the hills of Samaria. You see, the Samaritans were prejudiced toward the Jews. So when they realized that Jesus' destination was Jerusalem, they refused to greet his entourage. And his disciples, James and John, they got mad. So much so that they asked Jesus if they could call down a little fire from heaven. Singe these bigoted Samaritans. Talk about cancel culture. They were its chief proponents. And though Jesus rebuked his fiery disciples that day, trust me, Jesus too had his moments. He grieved over the sin he saw and he got angry over the people's rebellion. There were Jews so opposed to Jesus, though they couldn't deny his miracles, they attributed them to the power of Satan. And I'm sure Jesus thought, how dare you? Do you you ever witness the evil and audacity of men and ask, how dare you? People who abuse children or exploit women or stir up strife, folks who reinterpret gender and redefine marriage and, and reimagine sex as if they know more than their creator, how dare them? Have you ever said, how dare you? Numerous times, Jesus could have justified calling down fire from heaven. In fact, one day, that is exactly what he intends to do. Just read Revelation chapter 8, and just before he returns, fire falls from heaven. Fireballs are thrown at the earth and into the sea and onto the rivers and streams. And here in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus speaks of that time still future. In fact, he says, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Hear a little righteous rage in Jesus' voice? There were moments when Jesus swelled with an anger towards sin and rebellion. He knew God's judgment was just and he was more than ready to bring it to pass, but the time was not yet. And so he says again, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. The baptism that had put on hold God's judgment was Jesus's coming baptism of suffering and of death. Before Jesus judges the world for its sin, God first will judge the sin of the world in his body on the cross. Judgment is in Jesus's hands But first, those hands are nailed to a wooden cross as judgment for our sin. That was the immediate mission of Jesus. He's now headed to the cross. He's a few days away. And each day now, each step that he takes, our Lord's understanding of what's before him is getting clearer and clearer. In verse 51, Jesus asks, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will divide, be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law 
and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is, we don't hear this much about the ministry of Jesus. Isaiah 9 refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace, and that's true. But before we're united in Christ, we are first divided by Christ. Jesus is the line in the sand for all mankind. Today, the lines of demarcation in our culture are drawn around race and age and gender and political persuasion. But in the end, there will only be two groups of people on this planet, those in Christ and those outside of Christ. And this means that families will be drawn together in Christ, but also torn apart by Christ. It's ironic, the greatest unifier of men is also the greatest source of division. And some of you have experienced this divide. When you've put your foot down on a son or a daughter in their rebellious behavior, it's hard, but it's reality. High up in the Canadian Rockies, there's a stream that's called Divide Creek. And a boulder cuts the creek into two forks. The water that flows left rushes into the Kicking Horse River, which leads to the Pacific Ocean. Whereas the waters that flow right of the rock become the Bow River that eventually feed the Atlantic Ocean. This rock in the middle of Divide Creek determines the destiny of every single droplet. Water molecules that start out side by side are separated, then sent in opposite direction and end up thousands of miles apart. And likewise, there are folks who grow up side by side in the same house, no less, who come to the rock called Christ and get divided. At first, the separation seems minimal. They still hang out together, but the flow of their lives gradually leads them in very diverse directions. The current ends up taking them an eternity apart, one to heaven and one to hell. Jesus the rock is the fork in the stream of humanity. And then verse 54 tells us, Then Jesus also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there it is. I mean, clouds over the ocean indicate rain is coming. Winds from the south bring a heat wave. Jesus here sounds like the Israeli weatherman. But here's his point. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Oh, they could read the weather indicators, but they were oblivious to what the Bible said about the Messiah. Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture and his miracles were sure signs that he was the coming king. Jesus says the Jews could predict the weather, but they couldn't recognize the signs of the times. Yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? And then verse 58, when you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there until you have paid the very last mite. 
Now, every defense attorney knows that sometimes it's best to settle out of court. I mean, once your case reaches the judge, it's out of your control. And this is what God offers to each of us. He will settle our case. You don't have to stand trial for your sin. Did you know that a plea bargain is on the table for each one of us? God has purchased our pardon. We can settle out of court. We can trust his son and he'll set us free. As Jesus pointed out, one day this earth's sin and sinners will be judged. Jesus will call fire from heaven. Yet in the meantime, God has stayed his hand. And where his judgment is delayed, life can get confusing. Why do sinners prosper? Why do saints sometimes go belly up? Have you ever asked these questions? Right now, life is like the back of a cross stitch. All you see is the knotted, tangled underside. Life seems to be just a twist of, twisted maze of circumstances. From our limited earthbound perspective, life doesn't always make sense. But one day from heaven, we'll see the beautiful upper side of God's cross stitch called life. And we'll realize that all the lines really do make sense. There is a good purpose behind everything God does. The problem is that in the meantime, in this in-between time, God is expecting us to trust him even in the mess. And this thought sets up Luke chapter 13. For here a group of people approach Jesus who are perplexed by life's underside. They come to Jesus hoping that he'll make sense of a current tragedy. Verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now we really know nothing about these Galileans and the circumstances referenced. It seems that they were worshipers on pilgrimage in Jerusalem. And when they entered the temple to offer their sacrifice, they were murdered in the very act of worship. Now, were they guilty of some uprising that the Roman guard was forced to put down? We don't know. Were they just at the wrong place at the wrong time? We're not sure. All we know is that Pontius Pilate despised the Jews, and he had no sensitivity or respect for the local customs and religion. It's likely that this was another travesty of justice inflicted by a callous pilot on innocent Jews. There's no doubt, though, that this incident was front-page news. Everybody was discussing this. And so they asked Jesus to comment. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other, other, all other Galileans because they suffered such things? And of course, the obvious answer here is no. These men may not have been thought of as sinners at all. My word, they're in the temple. They're making their sacrifices to God. But Jesus says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, here's Jesus' point. They didn't die because they were worse sinners, but they did die because they were sinners. And in a fallen world, all men have sinned 
and fallen short of God's glory and deserve to die as a result. You know, when it comes to heaven and hell, grades don't matter. I mean, so what if you make a 34 on the test or you make a 45? I mean, what's the big deal? 34 or 45? I mean, you failed the test. Both are failing grades. And any sinful stain will flunk you out of eternal life. Discreet sinners deserve hell as much as despicable sinners. Crude sinners and cultured sinners all go to the same place. That's why we all need to repent. Without Jesus, nobody passes. If you don't repent, you'll perish, Jesus says. And then Jesus pulls another story from the news of his day. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? And here's the thought behind this question. Did God orchestrate the toppling of this tower to punish those 18 victims? Or did the tower's engineer miscalculate? Or did the footings erode? Or did the tour guide not read the sign that said the tower's capacity was 15 and instead he brought 18 into the tower? Or was it just bad timing on the part of the 18 who were victims? Now the popular Jewish explanation was that when anything bad happened, it was a judgment of God. That all physical events could be traced back to spiritual causes. So every sickness, every calamity was traced back to a specific sin. You see, the Jews just assumed that bad things happened to bad people and good things happened to good people. Yet Jesus says, wait a minute. It's not so simple. Did the victims die because they were the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Jesus answers his own question. I tell you, no. There was nothing these victims did or didn't do to warrant them being in that tower when it collapsed. Now, the tragedy was not the result of some specific sin, but was it the result of sin in general? And the answer is apparently yes. For in the next sentence, Jesus tells his listeners, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Ultimately, all tragedy, all sickness, all poverty, all natural disasters are the result of sin. For we live in a fallen world. Sin has thrown a wrench in the gears of life. Our world is no longer the utopia that God created. The sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, subjected the planet to disorder and chaos and randomness. Nature has gone haywire. It now acts in erratic and unpredictable ways. These 18 victims of the tower collapse, they didn't die because of a specific sin, but sin did kill them. For you can trace all death back to its original source, the sin of Adam. So when a tower falls or when cancer strikes or when a tornado hits, it's no one's fault and it's everyone's fault. See, it's wrong to conclude that the victim deserved his plight due to some specific sin, but it's also wrong to assume that we're all innocent and somehow it's God's fault 
because he's allowed the conditions of our sin to continue. Several years ago, there was a church over here on Highway 29 that was struck by lightning. The church was charred. It burned to the ground. And I caught myself driving down 29 one day thinking self-righteously, I wonder what was going on in that church that God had to hit it with a lightning bolt. See, but that's the kind of conclusion that Jesus tells us we should never draw. What if our church were struck by lightning? Would it mean that something nefarious was going on within the walls of our church? Of course not. All we can say for sure is that we live in a fallen world. And often we have no clue why God allows certain events. And it's wrong to force a deliberate cause onto everything that happens in life. It reminds me of a quote by actor John Travolta. He said, the richer I get and the more famous I become, the more ordinary I realize I am and that my only real talent is luck. But that's tough for Christians to swallow. I don't believe in luck. I doubt if you do either. The Bible teaches that behind all my circumstances is God's providential hand. And ultimately it is. But that's not how life can seem. Solomon actually makes a statement very similar to John Travolta's in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 11 when he says, The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. We don't like that explanation, do we? It doesn't satisfy our sense of fairness. Yet when God doesn't give us any other explanation, that's the only conclusion that we can really draw. See, the men in the tower were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It goes back to the cross stitch. From the underside, life doesn't always make sense. Some questions won't get answered until we get to heaven. And then verse 6 tells us, Jesus also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. Now in the Old Testament, the fig tree was a symbol for Israel. And for the previous three years, Jesus had ministered to the Jews, yet they bore no fruit. There was no evidence that they had paid attention to him. Now Jesus is on his final march to Jerusalem. This is his fourth year. This is the year of decision for the Jews. And Israel is here given one more year to reject or accept Jesus as their king and to decide their fate. And so verse 10 tells us, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. Now Jesus has taught us 
that we can't assume a particular illness is linked to a specific spiritual cause. But neither can we assume it's not. For sickness can be the result of a random bacteria or an agent of Satan. And Satan specializes in twisting people's backs and beliefs until they can no longer raise themselves up. Here, a spirit of infirmity, that is a demon, tortures this woman for 18 years. She lives hunchbacked for nearly two decades. The last couple of weeks, I've had some back problems. and Man, it's painful. Can you imagine, though, two decades? Living as a hunchback, not having any relief whatsoever. Verse 12. But when Jesus saw her, he called to him, he called, to, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity, just like that. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And many a crooked person, literally and figuratively, has been made straight by the touch of our Lord Jesus. But the ruler of the synagogue answered, and, and I don't even remember him being asked a question. You should keep your mouth shut, buddy. Jesus doesn't need your permission. Why are you now answering? And he answers with indignation. He's mad about it too, which which makes no sense. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. Oh, my. And here, this ruler of the synagogue, he represents the kind of religion that tries to tell God what he can and can't do. You know anybody like that? In religion, man's rules matter more than God's power or people's needs. That's religion for you. That's the kind of religion that creates a tunnel vision where the law becomes more important than the lawgiver himself. Oh, yes, God told Israel not to work on the Sabbath day, but he didn't say what he'd do. He does whatever he pleases, last I checked. Nobody tells God what to do, and yet religion does. It tries to put God in a box. Hey, he don't fit. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? I mean, the Jewish law allowed for all kinds of exceptions. You could loose an animal and lead it to water. Why not free a daughter of Abraham? I mean, legalism is the art of stripping rules of their original intent. It's law without love. God gave Israel the law to teach them how to love such a woman, not further oppress her. They were misapplying the law. And then verse 17, And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced in all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. 
There's something in all of us that just rejoices when these hypocrites get put in their place. It was embarrassing. This supposed man of God was opposing the Son of God in the name of God. Legalism had blinded the Jewish leaders to the truth. And then Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now the mustard seed was the smallest seed known to Jewish farmers. It became a proverbial way of referring to something imperceptible that you could barely see. And Jesus is saying that his kingdom has a small and insignificant profile that is imperceptible when it begins. It stays under the world's radar. Just think of the growth of Christianity as an example. Jesus' ministry was limited to a few years and just a few square miles. He left no army behind. He launched no government. His church constituted a minor movement in a secluded corner of the empire. Yet over the centuries, Christianity has grown exponentially. It has swept the world and back again. And this is always how God's kingdom spreads. God begins with just a little, just a man or a vision or some faith with little backing or little numbers or little publicity. And he works inconspicuously as a seed planted in the soil. See, the kingdom of God will always be an underground movement. It's only at the end of the age that what began as a bush grows into a tree and the birds of the air nest in its branches. This parable predicts that one day the nations of the world will gather to God and become part of his kingdom. But until then, the kingdom of God continues as something small and insignificant, like a, like a mustard seed. <clears throat> In verse 20, adds to this. And again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. This re reiterates the, the previous parable. For the kingdom of God is like leaven, that is yeast. God's kingdom influences from the inside out. It's spiritual and it's mysterious and it works under the surface. His love and his joy and his peace and his power rise up from within us by his spirit. Jesus is the king of hearts. This is how the kingdom grows. And Jesus went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Don't you think that sometimes? <laughs> Lord, are there few of us out there? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now this word narrow is a translation of the Greek term stenos, which means to compress or to constrict. Stenography or shorthand is a compressed form of, of, of writing. And apparently the gate of heaven is going to be a constricted 
entryway. I, I like to think of heaven's gate as a turnstile. You know, people will have to enter one at a time. No one gets caught up in the crowd and gets swept away to heaven. Each person has to individually decide to follow Jesus. And thus Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow gate. Entrance takes commitment and determination. Nobody just floats on somebody else's coattails into heaven. You don't become a Christian by osmosis. You yearn to enter. And to say yes to Jesus is to say no to every other so-called Savior. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus told Thomas and all his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That narrows the options considerably, doesn't it? If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't be afraid to take sides. Reminds me of the judge with the deliberating jury. He instructed the court clerk to go in and take their order. Well, when she returned, he asked if, if she saw any signs of how long the jury might be deliberating. Are they, are they reaching a decision? The clerk replied, no, it's going to take a long, long time. The judge said, why? How can you be sure? The clerk said, well, listen to their lunch order. Eleven burgers and one hot dog. Eleven coffees and one hot chocolate. Eleven fruit pies and one prune danish. I mean, obviously, there was a nonconformist on this jury. And if you want to get to heaven, you've also got to be somewhat of a nonconformist. You can't be afraid to stick out. The path to heaven is a swim upstream. As Jesus put it, strive to enter the narrow gate. And then verse 25 when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I don't know you, where you're from. Depart from me. All you workers of iniquity. Wow. Wow. I mean, Jesus taught in their streets. He ate in their homes, but they never opened their hearts to him. See, there is a difference between knowing Jesus and just knowing about Jesus. Big difference. Be sure you know him. You really know him. Or when you arrive in eternity, you'll be on the outside looking in, my friend. You don't want to hear him say, depart from me. See, you can cry, Lord, Lord, and never make Jesus your Lord. For there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. See, from the brink of eternity, you'll be able to see two landscapes. In one direction, there's forever fire, an unquenchable thirst, and utter darkness. But those are not the severest tortures in this place we call hell. 
What causes the weeping and gnashing of teeth is when you see your friends and family enjoying heaven, blessings you'll never experience. See, it's the permanence of what you've lost that drives people nuts in hell. I believe there's a one-way glass that separates heaven and hell. Kind of like our glass over here to the nursing mother's room. Not that, not that it's hell on the other side of there or anything. But, but I mean, we got a one-way glass here. You know, so that we can see all that's going on on this side, but we can't see what's going on on the other side. They can, they can see, though. They can see through here. They can see us. They can see us having a great time in here. I, I'm not saying they're not having a great time over there, but they can see us. But, but there's going to be a window separating heaven from hell just the same way. And the people in hell will be able to see us in heaven worshiping and praising God and having a great time. But we won't be able to see them. We'll only see a reflection of what's going on in heaven. But they'll have to look. They'll have to see. They'll have to see what they've missed out on for all eternity. And that will cause weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 29. They will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first. And there are first who will be last. Oh my, in, in eternity, in the kingdom of God, it will be full of surprises. Folks who are in the back of the line on earth will suddenly go to the head of the class in heaven. I love this little poem. I dreamed death came the other night and heaven's gate swung open wide. An angel with halo bright ushered me inside. And there to my astonishment stood folks I'd known on earth some I judged and labeled unfit of little worth. Angry words rose to my lips, but never were set free. For every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. <laughs> hey, in heaven, you may have to go to the nosebleeds, man, to see the famous preachers and the celebrity saints. Courtside is going to be occupied by the prayer warriors you never knew existed. The folks who serve backstage. And on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And this was no idle threat. You, you remember, this was the same Herod who just beheaded John the Baptist. And Jesus said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. <laughs> Jesus had power over a roaring lion named Satan. He wasn't afraid of a little fox called Herod. In fact, Jesus' greatest demonstration of power was still ahead. He would rise the third day and ascend to heaven. That's where his focus was. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't worried about Herod. He was destined for Jerusalem and for a Roman cross. And the thought of his visit to the holy city filled his heart with passion. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus now releases a thousand years of pent-up grief and emotion. He cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you 
were not willing. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The Jewish Talmud read, Of the ten measures of beauty that came down to the world, Jerusalem took nine. Even the Muslims have a saying, One prayer in Jerusalem is worth 40,000 elsewhere. I love Jerusalem. The last time we went, Kathy and I went four or five days early and we spent our time in Jerusalem. It's an amazing city, amazing city. It's a majestic city. Psalm 48 speaks of Jerusalem, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. Is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king? Jerusalem is a place boiling over with life. It's where east meets west and where ancient meets modern and where history meets future. All the world's major religions collide in Jerusalem. It's the home of universal hopes and dreams. There's no other city like it. Jerusalem is where Abraham offered Isaac. It's the city that God gave to David to be his capital. It's where Solomon built the temple, a place to worship God. And as Jesus now reaches the Mount of Olives and he looks eastward, or I'm sorry, westward toward Jerusalem, and as he views the cityscape before him, he recalls not just his numerous earthly visits to Jerusalem, but he recalls the thousands of times when he leaned over the rail in heaven and longed to gather up the Jews as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But it never happened. And why? The ominous answer was, you were not willing. It wasn't God's fault. Israel had a hard heart. Israel wasn't willing. And listen, some of you need to really pay attention to this. Hard hearts have consequences. Jesus says, see, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In a few days, Jesus will make his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem, and the crowds will line the streets singing this messianic psalm, Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet here, Jesus isn't rejoicing, he's mourning. Jerusalem was a privileged city. Yet she never lived up to her opportunities. And thus the city will be destroyed and made desolate. Soon the crowd that hailed Jesus as Messiah will shout and scream, crucify him, crucify him. Listen, hard hearts have consequences. And then chapter 14 begins. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the, of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Now this isn't the same disease the Atlanta Falcons wide receivers <laughs> contracted this past year. That's, that's a different kind of dropsy. The modern word for dropsy is edema. It's usually the result of a kidney shutdown. 
Your tissues fill with fluids and the body becomes bloated. Your arms and legs begin to swell. The skin gets mushy. Dropsy is a painful disease and in ancient times it was often fatal. Now Jesus was invited into this Pharisee's house on the Sabbath and a man with dropsy happened to be there. Was his presence deliberate? Was he a plant? Could be. The Jews often tried to trap Jesus. And particularly annoying to them was his habit of healing on the Sabbath day. As we've already seen this morning, seven times in the Gospels, Jesus performed such healings and thus violated their rules. Now, God had prohibited work on the Sabbath, but the Jews were the ones who had interpreted healing as work. Prior to Jesus, this was academic, for very few people got healed. But when the great physician started his practice, the office was open seven days a week. This blessed the sick, but it vexed the proud and the narrow-minded, and they resented Jesus for violating their petty rules. And here Jesus initiates the subject. He attacks this head-on. He's the one who says, Jesus answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Let's just get this out in the open. But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go, the man with dropsy. And then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out of the, on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. You remember the law made exceptions for the Sabbath day, even for livestock. You know, if your livestock fell into a ditch, you could pull them out. You know, we use this expression today. You know, we do something on the Sabbath. Somebody questions you. You say, well, my ox was in a ditch. You ever use that expression? The law let you save your ox on the Sabbath day. So why not a human being? Isn't a man or a woman made in God's image more valuable than a beast of burden? Of course he is. She is. And so he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, and he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. Not good, not good. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. That's a better outcome. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. And verse 11 is the moral of the story. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. When the Japanese finally surrendered World War II, it was Bing Crosby who announced on the radio, what can you say at a time like this? I guess all anybody can do is thank God it's over. Decades later, NPR commentator David Brooks, he recounted Crosby's humble words, and he said how impressed he was that America had won a world war and didn't boast about it. All Bing Crosby said was, I guess 
All anybody can do is to thank God it's over. Well, he mentioned Crosby's quote in light of something he had seen at a recent football game. A running back took a swing pass, and he was tackled by a defensive end two yards downfield. Just two yards. Well, the tackler came up flexing and gyrating and celebrating as football players do today. Well, David Brooks wrote this. It occurred to me I had just watched more self-celebration after a two-yard gain than I had heard after the United States won World War II. And then he concluded, it's sad how proud we've become. The world that we live in encourages pride. Thinking of yourself before others. And yet the Bible says in James 4 verse 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want to be among the humble. We desperately need the wisdom of Jesus. Exalt yourself and God will humble you. But humble yourself. And God will see to it that you get exalted. And so we've learned a lot today, haven't we? Though Jesus will one day call fire from heaven, today he longs for faith, not fire. He is the dividing line for all mankind. Life on earth is like the backside of a cross stitch. It doesn't always make sense. We have to learn to trust him even in the mess. Jesus makes crooked people straight. He did then and he still does today. He puts love over law. His kingdom starts small and insignificant like a mustard seed. And it works below the surface like leaven. It influences from the inside out. And the entry to heaven is a narrow gate. We have to press to enter. And finally, Jesus longs for us like he did for Jerusalem. Like a mother hen, he wants to gather us up, but we need to be willing. And part of that willingness is to humble ourselves and wait on his exaltation. And we should do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you for your words.